Welcome back. Uh, this is Elite Business Live, coming to you live from London's Kensington, uh, to wherever you may be joining us from. Um, I'm Ollie Barrett, and I'm co-hosting throughout today. Um, uh, it is uh, a great pleasure to welcome our very first panel to the day. Hello, Eric. Hello, Al. It's very nice to see you. It's like a reunion. This is great. And Abby, and this is good. Right. Now, my question to the team is, well, we'll introduce everybody. Right. We've met Lara. Lovely to see you, Lara. Thank you for being sort of put through the mill there. Thank you very much. Pleasure, Ollie, of course. And absolutely brilliantly, we are joined by Yash Bagniewski. Uh, good morning. Like, very good morning. Yash, can you hear me? Hey, guys. Yes, I can hear you, Ollie. Now, you're a very good man because I believe you're in San Francisco, Yash. I am, yeah, it's 2 a.m. So I actually woke <laughs> up. Those guys are looking a bit sleepy. Well, you've still got a great smile, so look, thank you. There's a, no irony at all in inviting the founder of Eve Sleep, and indeed now the founder of Lover. We'll hear more about that. I mean, dread to think what you got out of bed for, to be quite honest. Uh, but it's uh, very good of you to join us, Yash. Thank you. More in a second. Uh, next to uh, um, Lara Morgan, uh, we, of course, are joined uh, by James Davidson, the founder of Tales.com. Co-founder, yeah. Well, co -founder. That's very humble of you. Just share the love, absolutely right. <laughs> Tails.com, personalised pet food. Yep, tailored for each and every dog. I love it. Well, Lara, are you a customer? I am a customer. I have two very healthy boxes, and my yeah. mum was commenting, you'll love this. Oh, their coats are looking so good, darling. Yeah. It's because I'm bloody walking them every day as well, mummy. <laughs> <laughs> and you're feeding them the best food. Yeah, I am. <laughs> well you. done to you. So in that sense, James, you went sort of from, from the very large corporate to the sort of co-founder, but just, just remind us in a sort of whistle-stop fashion of the Tales.com journey. Oh, wow. Seven, seven years, or oh, we're in our eighth year at the moment yeah. since, we, since we started back in uh, 2013, launched in 2014, nearly came to a screeching halt and closed the business shortly after that. <laughs> Found our feet, fortunately, and it's been upwards and onwards since then. We launched now in, across nine countries in Europe. Wow. Uh, Brexit's giving us some fun and games at the moment. COVID's brought a different set of challenges, but it's been, a, yeah, it's been quite a journey and it's well, keeping we're gonna, going. We're going to hear about it. In terms of the type of animal that you're then serving through their owners, started with dogs? Yeah, yeah um, we've got a small test, uh, commercial test running in the market at the moment under another brand that is cat food. Uh, oh. It's called Republica Cats, if you want to check it out. Interesting, interesting. So the old joke about entrepreneurs is, do you eat your own dog food? But I suppose I can ask you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, well, it has been known, absolutely. On, 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 uh, back in the early days, it was stupidly, actually, crazily, one of the ways that we were deciding which of the different recipes we thought would be most palatable for dogs. Of course, you know now that dogs find things completely differently <laughs> uh, tasty to what humans do, but it was kind of fun at the time. No, I can imagine if we'd have a candid camera on that. But thank you for joining us, James. More in a second. Uh, Abby Morris, how lovely to see you. Again, how are you? Good to see you. How are you? Yeah, very good indeed. Thank you. Um, I think your business gets more and more topical as the years go by. You're the co-founder yeah. of Compare Ethics, and this, I, I think, of it as like 3D vision helps <laughs> us see a bit more clearly. T t tell us what we can see through Compare Ethics. Yeah, sure. So Compare Ethics is the leading verification technology for ethics and sustainability. So the core of what we do is an algorithm that verifies products across 10 categories to make sure that the product is indeed ethical and sustainable. So eliminating all of that greenwashing. Right. So that tool is then placed in the hands of a company, the consumer themselves? Yes. So both. So the company uses us to verify their products and then we make it super easy for consumers at the point of sale online and in store to understand the information about that product. Yeah, very good. So Compare Ethics, we can hear more about that. And obviously it's rising up the agenda. Eric Partica, how lovely to see you. Yeah, Did you hear you. Lara's technique for starting the day? 
I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Blank sheet of paper. Learned it from you, Eric. You are a super coach. I think I'm allowed to say you coach Navy SEALs and billionaires yeah. in the mix. Yeah. Uh, but I think lots of different types of coaches, in particular, you're a serial entrepreneur. You were CEO of the year a couple of years ago. Um, what type of coach would you say you are? It's a a, a coach who's who's not coaching from a franchise system, but more from in the trenches experience. Right, right. So, you know, so I, I, I do a, an intersection of helping someone scale up, you know, themselves as a person, their leadership and their company. So it's like an integration of business and life coaching together. Okay, so challenge then. Can it be tempting, given the point about the trenches, to jump in and say, oh, I know the answer. Here's what it is. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and I use coaching as it's a, it's a simple way of, you know, describing what you do. But, in, you know, the reality is it's, it's a mixture of coaching, mentoring and consulting. Right. OK. So, so you accept yeah. that blend. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you, Eric. Welcome. It's lovely to yeah, see you. Yash, um, we're uh, with you in San Francisco. Presumably, if, I, if you don't mind me taking you back to the Eve sleep days, you were solving a problem that you'd faced yourself because the mattresses you were sleeping on weren't good enough. Um, I guess partly, you know, we, it was more when we were trying to buy a mattress. I think we realized just how complicated the process was and how, how expensive they were and how difficult it was to pick one. But, um, but yeah, we definitely saw it as an industry that was there to be disrupted. I like the fact that you sort of blew away the tyranny of choice. You centered right on one product from the start. Was that the right decision? Um, you know, it was a great way to launch. I think later on, as we sort of grew the business, we saw that there were benefits in expanding that a little bit. But um, we started selling through Groupon, which at the time was uh, a daily deal site. So you could only do one product on there. And the, the first time we ran a Groupon deal, we sold 6,000 mattresses on the first day ended up turning to turning over two million dollars in our first day of business so it was um it seemed to just be a, the simplicity seemed to really resonate with people in a way that we hadn't actually expected we were sort of forced into that a little bit because of the group on model um but yeah i think it i think it worked great for us and eventually we sort of had to expand and figure out how to how to manage the messaging around that because we've been so focused on the one product yeah, a hugely successful growth story. We'll learn some lessons learned the hard way. Tell us a little bit about your latest escapade. Still bed-related? Uh, potentially, yeah. It doesn't have to be, but often bed-related. It's, it's an app around helping people improve their sex lives uh, using sort of sex therapy techniques to solve a number of, um, I guess, problems that people encounter in, in, their, in their sexual lives. So things like low libido, one in three couples have, uh, who have been together three years or more have a non-sexual relationship, uh, more mechanical things like lasting longer in bed or erectile dysfunction for guys, and then things around orgasming more consistently and just generally spicing up your love life as well for women. So yeah, quite a, quite an interesting area I found. Spicing up your love life, right, we're getting Spice Girls memories all over, right. <laughs> well, thank you, Yash. By the way, do, do, does um, your the reaction to this new business depend on where you're pitching it around the world? A bit of a leading question from an uptight Brit, but there you go. I've, I've become remarkably comfortable talking about it, really. Uh, you know, it's sort of something I can now tell my, talk with my parents about, you know, around the dinner table, but it was definitely something I was quite, um, quite shy about initially. But we've been going for about a year now and have been sort of working on it even a little bit longer than that. So uh, I've just, yeah, I've just become quite sort of 
uh, casual talking about it, I guess. And I forgot that we're talking in Britain now, so apologise if anyone's school. No, not at all. No, no, no. We're all very, very easy going up, Eric. Yes. <laughs> so good. Right. Well, yes, don't go anywhere. Right. I want to understand a little bit. James, I'll start with you if that's mm. all right. Commercial growth is a conversation for who within a company? Are you huddled in a boardroom with you and your co-founder or do we involve others? Uh, absolutely involve others. In fact, I think commercial growth, the, the most su sustainable way starts with the customer and what's going to be the right thing for, for them, which is certainly one of the lessons we learned the hot way at Tales.com. But the way that you provide that for the customer is by the whole team, the whole company, understanding what matters to the customer most and how to make that, make that happen. And from there, customers will engage more, ultimately buy more if it's in a commercial enterprise and, and growth will follow. And what is the top thing you've learned about how to have an honest, productive, insightful conversation with a customer? How do you make that happen? I think from a starting point is to, to completely believe in the quality of the product that you're yep. selling because then there's no, there are no areas where you might feel uncomfortable to go if the customer needs to ask questions or talk about it or challenge you on it. Yep. So having a product that you believe in uh, holistically and, th and entirely, I think, is absolutely key to that. Yep. And then, then there can be the, any conversation. There's no need to try to steer it in a particular direction or away from a particular area. Right. You can, if, if as a, a leader in business, or actually anybody working in business, you can feel proud of the products you're making and the choices you've made of how you make those products uh, and feel that that's right, then, then you can engage with anybody, including customers, about it. Okay, and then what flows from that, just briefly, when it comes, though, to setting, for example, some goals for the business, what you're going to measure, how, to what extent do you involve the whole team in that? Um, a lot, uh, and uh, pretty much every cycle, whether that's on a, what's the, what are the, what's the plan for this month, yeah. or what are the priorities for the quarter, or even what's our plan for the year. Yeah. We, like a lot of businesses, we will start with a, a top-down uh, forecasting that starts with, where do, we, where do we want from a, really a shareholder point of view, this thing to go? Yeah. How big do we want to grow it from a top-down point of view? But actually more important than, than that is the, what we would call the bottom-up process of putting those plans together, which yeah. really starts with all of the teams yeah. figuring out, well, what's possible? in our area yes and how does that go from the bottom laddering up to meet the overall single number objective for the business so that would involve everybody very good now thank you now I think it's obvious but important to say that we're not after the right answer on this kind of panel we're just after what has worked in your personal lived experience so we're going to go rapid fire on that same question who to involve in this conversation Abby then Lara mm -hmm. yeah I totally agree with that actually I think also particularly around things like product it's really nice to have a really variety of disciplines really coming together yeah. so our developers will come at one angle our customer success a completely different angle ideally they would be similar angles but it's always interesting to see how when you are building that bottom-up segment um, how they other people come up with amazing ideas that you didn't think about on the top down so I totally agree with that right now Eric please build on this give us your perspective absolutely in involving everyone and that's the that's where the magic happens when you can get people when you get a whole team in the room and you can get them to take off their functional hats and just think more collaboratively like what what's the best solution here what are the best goals to be working on and engage in that healthy debate that productive conflict um, that may even from the outside appear to be you know, a bit fighty at times, but mm. it's that's how you arrive at you know the the best um, decisions, the best goals, and also uh, potentially shine a light on you know some some traps or pitfalls. Right. So I guess it leads to this bigger question, Lara, of what we're measuring in the first place: growth of what? Uh, there could be some red herrings in there, but what have tended to be your north stars? Um, 
if, if I understand the question, I mean, in, in product development, I actually think the point that we've missed that we all would agree, I guess, is the customer is going to dictate because the customer is the, cho- the person that has the spend, right? So I, I mean, I only learned in industry by, because I was an idiot and very young that the best thing to do at meetings was to hear what the customer wanted and then provide solutions for the customer. Mm. Now, clearly dogs don't talk, but the consumer will tell you how they want their dog to behave, look and feel. And if we can be listening to the customer's requirements and then, frankly, exceeding that expectation. So, you know, an example, just now, as everything, you know, 30 40% growth online, the unboxing experience is kind of this packaging phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But actually, it is really important that every touch point of every part of a consumer journey, we want to be doing better, serving well. And of course, Abby will agree that then you've got to take the packaging into consideration and use the right materials and minimize waste. And, and again, the customer and looking, frankly, at the competition, let's see what the hell they're doing and beat the what's it out of them yeah. because we'll improve. Yeah, I, I guess... My, 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 my wider point, Yash, is that if you're sitting with your co-founders saying, we want to grow this company in the next 12 months, if I take you back to the EVE rocket ship, somebody says, but we'll grow what? Is it turnover? Is it profit? Is it headcount, number of customers? What did you have on the dashboard? Um, and what are your reflections on what you were measuring? I think it sort of evolves as the business evolves you know when you're starting it's very much i think about revenue and and just getting customers in and showing that there's a demand for your product um and especially if you've raised venture investment or any kind of investment really i think there's a um there's an acceptance that you will burn a little bit of money in order to grow at the beginning but as as the business sort of matures and evolves i think it becomes more around some of those other things you mentioned like profitability and margins um, so, so yes, I think it just sort of depends where you are in your life cycle. But at the beginning, I think it's just about trying to figure out some sort of a product market fit and trying to figure out, um, just trying to show that there are customers out there for what you're doing. Um, and, and then, yeah, and then I think as the business matures, that changes. I also so think I, there's, so you I know, wonder. between the, the, the founding team. I, I always found that, like, the, you know, the kind of CEO role is very focused on growth points. And, and, and then you have to sort of bring everybody on board and, and, and sort of get buy-in from a lot of people. And you'll hear a lot of voices around the table. You know, your ops guys will say, but if we grow too fast, this will impact customer services or the marketing guys will be focused on, you know, tone of voice or whatever in that. And so you have to kind of get everybody on board with the idea that the growth is also important. I, I always found there's quite a lot of resistance around the organization from growing too fast. Yeah, no, that's a fascinating reflection. I mean, Abby, uh, before we get in back to the trenches for some um, sort of war stories, as it were, um, uh, there, is an, there is a concern that we might be measuring some of the wrong things. And, uh, and actually, there is such a thing as bad growth that ends up accidentally or certainly trashing the planet in various ways. I mean, yeah. To what extent does that resonate as a concern? A hundred percent. But I think what's really interesting, particularly in the venture space now, but just in business more generally, is the the alignment between um, a growth agenda with impact. They don't, they, you know, they used to be so divorced from one another. Yeah. And nowadays, I think, you know, venture capital in particular, but business in general, aligning, you know, maybe purpose to profit, but really good companies really focus on, you know, that theory of change. How am I going to change society and the environment at the same time as 
of growing this this entity um you know there's also new business models so how can we reuse the product and take it back you know there's a lot more out there now um than in recent uh, years mm. gone by uh really to actually help us drive that change so yes it's really important going forward so so james to what extent is the bad news that those very legitimate concerns act as a handbrake on a business growth or might they actually increase its growth and speed? I, I think it, it, it depends what the other challenges are for, for, that a business is facing in, it, in its growth. But certainly in today's world, I think in most uh, situations, it, it can enhance growth because it's increasingly important to consumers. And consumers yeah. ultimately are the ones who are, are buying the products yeah. that flow into the business to support the growth. So I think that's uh, um, uh, it's entirely possible to grow a uh, commercially successful, profitable business in a way that's sustainable socially, economically, and uh, socially and environmentally as well. Yeah. So, so let's have a, a couple of stories from your own personal experiences because, Lara, I guess somebody watching might think there are so many ways I could grow this business. I could sell more to my existing customers. I could come up with new product lines. Mm. I could go to different parts of the world. How do we navigate that? Or how have you navigated that? Give us an example that you learned the hard way. Yeah, I mean, I'm an idiot. So it took me nine years to write a business plan. Um, so everybody in the room can be better than that. And I didn't have any business training. And I was reading it in a book and I was trying to be all things to all men, which is daft. So once I worked out that actually we were selling hotel products and and if we were going to sell branded one, ones and we were watching the competition like Moulton Brown and if we specialised in a specific part of the hospitality trade and we stuck to our knitting of, let's say, being experts in five-star supply and then we worked out that there were some tactics that we could do within our range that, that ultimately blocked others from that supply mm -hmm. because we became kind of a luxury one-stop shop, then actually the strategy enabled us to accelerate growth because we owned an original proposition yes. and it was economically viable and it made it more profitable and that gave us more power. So I think you kind of hone it. I think Jan was absolutely, Yaz was absolutely right. You know, you evolve and, yes. and there isn't a business plan I have seen yet that goes from what it said it was going to be. I mean, you're laughing already, James, because we agree. That, that delivers on that promise yeah, and therefore the CEO has to be open-eared and listening to change. All right, well, we'll come on to plans and planning, but Eric, a specific question for you. Annetta asks, how do you stay true to your core values in the midst of an entrepreneurial growth spurt? That's a great question, isn't it? So staying true to your core values even when you grow as a business. Well, I, so I don't look at core values as uh, being applicable during non-growth versus growth periods, they're, they're always applicable. Mm. Um, and the best way you insulate yourself from uh, a departure from those values, a couple of things. So one, making sure that the people that you're adding to the team truly represent mm -hmm. you know, those values, um, that you're being mindful of uh, attitudes or behaviors that are inconsistent with those values and mm -hmm. making sure that you're still calling them out, even though you're going through a heavy growth period. Um, and then just making sure you're talking about them all the time. So talking about them in your team meetings, talking about them in your you know, monthly, you know, all company meetings, in your quarterly meetings. Um, and then all of that, the caveat for all of that, though, is to recognize that where you're in a high growth period, things will get shaky and things may you know, at times you know, cross the line or step over certain value boundaries. But as long as you can rebound and pull back and recognize when those missteps happen, then you're still okay. Right, so, so have there been times along the way, um, Yash, potentially uh, one for you, where you've 
had to do the equivalent of slamming on the brakes um, or, you know, are these businesses runaway trains, you can't do such things. Yeah, no, there's absolutely times where we've had to do that. I mean, that, that can happen from bottlenecks on things like manufacturing or production. It can happen from just the feeling of like the organization is creaking a little bit, you know, bad reviews coming in or anything like that. So we've had to do it in the past. It's it's really difficult because one, it, you work so hard to kind of get that momentum in an organization and then to kind of pull it back is, you know, there's something quite tough about that. But what, um, forgive I'm, me, forgive me, Yash, we're, we're talking euphemistically, which I've started, but what did that mean in practice that you had to do to change, to slow the thing down? Um, I mean, it, for us, it, it would often be quite a big cultural shift because we were, we were so fast growing. Um, it could involve doing practical things in the background, like ramping up your manufacturing capacity. It could be hiring people. But like Eric said, I think really getting the right people in is, is so important in terms of culture and values that you can't, you can't sort of express some of these things. So you have to kind of just take a breather, I guess, and, yeah. and also get comfortable pushing back on the outside to investors and other people that it, it might be better to, to slow down slightly. But that's something that was really difficult for me always, because I just loved the speed of it more than anything, I think. And so <laughs> yeah, but that's a very honest, that's, that's an honest confession. And, and, and James, um, I wonder, it can be exhilarating, but any, any sort of brake pad sniffing moments? Oh, plenty, plenty. The, the, and, and, you know, pr pretty much every quarter there'll be somewhere where we've put the brakes on because of a supply constraint or, a, or some other challenge. In, in the very early days, we had to put the brakes on the, on the whole business because Yash was talking about finding product market fit earlier as one of the early stages of what you're trying to do. And when we hadn't, hadn't found that and it looked like we, we wouldn't, yeah. then, then we absolutely had to slam, slam the brakes on the marketing spend, for example, and just putting more customers into what was too leaky a bucket at the time. And I think for, for a lot of, of early stage growth businesses, that, that is a, not an uncommon situation to be in how are you navigating this abby because you're growing your own yeah. business there'll be a uh, demand globally for it so how yeah. are you uh, how are you setting your course so we're just really going back to the customer we're really led by the customer and we were constantly validating testing and iterating and we're you know we're testing with the different stage of product market fit and we're on that journey um, so what we do day to day is just make sure that the customer is the center of every decision so whilst we have that strategy 50 percent of our time development time customer time mm. is is dedicated to actually feeding in what overall our customers are telling us okay. and iterating our product accordingly i mean we literally have deployed features just in the last few weeks um, that are really aligning just to based on on feedback so we have to do that in order to to get that momentum and grow really quickly so, so what about the other take everybody on this potentially um there's a lot of listening to customers going on, but to what extent are there times to inspire, to lead, to influence? Well, uh, you know, if Henry Ford said, <laughs> if he would have asked customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. <laughs> so you can't always, um, you know, pin your product development to what customers want and what <laughs> they voice. Um, you know, the iPhone wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been created. We wouldn't have cars today. Um, mm -hmm. the, the Walkman wouldn't have been you know, made by Sony in uh, 1979. Uh. So I think you also need to have a vision and um, sometimes you know, feel confident that the market needs this, even if they don't voice it.
Interesting. Right. Let's uh, have a look for another question. I, I think it's good to go back to these biggest obstacle uh, questions, uh, actually, um, if, if, if we think about it. So, um, who will? Um, so, this is a question for Lara specifically. And I'll quite short on it, Lara. But the biggest obstacle you had in your business journey and how you overcame it. Oh, you can't. I mean, you just. There is no such thing as the biggest obstacle. I mean, I just think that's. Enterprise is about overcoming obstacles or over, round, under, through, bombastic, challenging, get it done, you know, and, and, and we have to adapt, right? So, I mean, I guess to some extent constrained by finance because we grew fast, but actually now finance has changed and there is access to funds and I think that's different. I mean, I, enterprise is relentless. There are going to be obstacles. You have to have the mindset to overcome and then sometimes you have to have the grace to ask for help. Yeah, mm. right. really powerful. Mm. So on that, will you give me your very brief take, each of you, on the merit of plans versus planning? Because I do know that, James, a lot of business people will say, you know, business plans are for the birds. We show them to our investors and we quietly bin them. So let, let, let's just, just have your super, super pithy <laughs> take, each of you, on this. And uh, Lara won't be afraid to shake us up, but James... So Eisenhower is one of my favourite quotes, you know, it's not the plan that matters, it's the act of planning. And yeah. that's so, that for me is so true. And, and the other sort of maxim or, or around planning that I think is important, uh, particularly financial plans, better to be roughly right than precisely wrong. Yeah. Because it takes less time, but in trying to at least be roughly right, you notice things, you think of things, whether they're ideas or you, you sense obstacles around the corner that you can then have some idea of how you'll mitigate so you can move faster when it does happen. Really powerful. Yash, what's your take, plans and planning i can imagine you not shooting from the hip sir but just saying do you know what we we make this up as we go we're on a mission don't bog me down um not not maybe as cavalier as that i mean i think that i think it's a really healthy process to really plan out what your business is going to look like in the sort of coming future and to really think about you know sort of put on paper what it is that's kind of in your head in terms of um, where it's going. So, so I think it's a helpful process, but I think also the reality is, especially early on, it's so unpredictable yeah. that you have to be quite nimble on your feet, I think. And, and I think one of the balances is how long do you stick with things, you know, and not, and not just constantly just course correct versus sticking, doing the wrong thing. I, I always find that quite a difficult balance as a founder, sort of giving things enough time, um, but also you know, being, being nimble enough to change. So I, I don't know that I have a great answer. And I think it depends a lot on the business. And I think it depends how well you, your plan ends up being followed, which is a, there's a lot of luck in that, I think. Yeah, and I guess the other dimension to all of this, Abby, is having planning for multiple scenarios. Yes, which I, mean, I was really resonating with a lot of that. But I do love a good plan. And in a market that changes so quickly, I mean, for us, we're creating a whole new market. There's a whole new segment around how do you verify products and what that means in terms of eliminating greenwashing, new regulation coming out. So we're always looking into the market. I think going back to previous points, I think the tough thing around that is around constantly seeing patterns in the data to know when to double down and when to change direction. Yeah. So um, whilst I love my plan, I have to be you know, looking to where the market's going all the time. Right. So, so, so on that, Eric, I mean, other than having an amazing coach, um, who, who do businesses surround themselves with, or the best businesses, when it comes to planning that commercial growth? Who, who should be around that table? 
Well, it starts with with the team, like the leadership team itself needs to be the right people, strong. Um, they all need to buy in and believe mm -hmm. in the whole, you know, value of of planning. Mm -hmm. And then on a maybe less frequent basis, you need that that board of directors there, right? Mm -hmm. That you can tap into on a quarterly basis and say, "Hey, are we you know right with this direction? And um, you know, can you help us with you know planning?" Um, our, our way forward. Yeah, I wonder about others, like banks. Would you, would you, would you, you know, are they in the mix? Would you just go to them when you've decided, James? Um, well, b banks definitely play an important role, in, or can do, in terms of how you finance it, which is the, one of the biggest uh, challenges yeah. often in a business. But it's not something that we've we've relied on. We've had very supportive private investors throughout our growth, and I think if you're in a, f in a fortunate pl enough place to get private investors, they can be much more emotionally bought into the to, to the business than perhaps a, uh, an institution like a bank. Yeah, and famously one of the co-founders of Innocent, uh, investing in the business. Your top tip about getting that investor to put money into a business. Uh, it's very similar to the, my, my thoughts around customers, actually. Really believe in, in, in the product, every aspect of, of why it's successful, and, and I think that, uh, that that belief can unlock the ability to inspire. Mm. It can be infectious and inspi inspire others, whether mm. they are the customers, people you want to come and work on your team, or people you want to invest in your business. And if they know you already and you have, a strong have had a strong relationship with them, as I did with the, the innocent guys, then that c can just help. It's a force multiplier, really, to make that, Brilliant. that kind of thing happen. And that was through Jam Jar Investments. Well, listening to our every word has been Hannah Previtt, uh, my co-host, with her keen journalistic eyes and ears. So I'm afraid it's not over because she's going to be pinpointing some more questions in your direction except for you Yash because you can uh, go back to bed or <laughs> on to party whatever uh, your choice might be but seriously uh, from the west coast of the US we hugely appreciate your time uh, Yash and really good luck with your next business lover we will be tuning in thank, thank you, you very much guys Yash, as he logs up obviously uh, talking of bottom-up techniques and uh, thank you also to all of you to Lara uh, thank you to James, to Abby, and to Eric as well. Good to get a chuckle out of you at the end there, Eric. Thank you very much indeed, and we will see you a bit later on your way to see Hannah as you all leave the stage. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. So here we are. So commercial growth, plans versus planning. So back to that Eisenhower quote, plans are useless, but planning is essential. Who do you surround yourself with? But also, I think, back to that thought about stories from the trenches? What can we learn uh, from each other's experience? And by the way, if you're watching today and you're thinking, how can I find somebody? Is it through Vistage, one of our partners? Is it through the Department for International Trade, one of our partners who've shared so many good people with us? Um, we want to try and stir up some thinking about some of those choices. So any minute now, we're going to go back to our brilliant co-host who will grill our guests backstage. And you'll be with Hannah Previtt any minute now. Thank you, Ollie. And what a superstar panel that was. My goodness, I am very excited to get my hands on them backstage here to f ask some follow-up questions. I mean, there was so much good stuff there, I barely know where to start. Um, and Yash, my goodness, uh, coming all the way to us from San Francisco. So as you said, many thanks to him. Um, I remember when I interviewed him back in the day, not long after he started Eve Sleep, he was telling me all about how lots of mattress brands at that time, there was a trend 
to talk about how they were uh, designed and um, created in conjunction with NASA scientists, um, which he pointed out sounds very impressive, but we're not entirely sure what it has to do with mattresses. I would rather my mattress was designed by someone who knew about mattresses rather than spaceships, but there you go. Right, first, <laughs> here I am joined by Lara. Yes, please, if you could come and join me up here, Lara. I won't keep you too long because I know you've already been grilled twice on the stage this morning. Lovely to be here. <laughs> so um, we had one question in from an audience member a few moments ago um, who's starting out, you know, they've just left school. <coughs> um, they think they might want to be an entrepreneur when they grow up. Um, what should they do? What kinds of experiences could they be exposing themselves to, you know, to help build some of those entrepreneurial skill sets? Good question. Um, so I was 18 when I got my first job straight out of school and I was lucky in the sense that I kind of landed on my feet in a business that was pretty open-minded and, and I could try different things. So I think seeing a sector that that person wants to be in, you know, it could be hospitality, it could be fitness, it could be whatever, means that you've got the opportunity to experiment and to understand business by just getting involved. And obviously that's not very easy at the moment. So even if you have to find a way of doing a second job but being in a business in a sector that you like you're going to learn lessons and then frankly start networking early be much braver than I was you know I was stupid and naive um, didn't realize the power of names and, and knowing people and LinkedIn and persistence and, and start reading about business because we can teach ourselves a great deal and then start narrowing the field. I mean, you know, ultimately we're meant to become experts in the stuff we love doing because actually if you love what you're doing every day, you're kind of happier and that becomes infectious and I think that breeds success. Mm -hmm. Really good point about kind of absorbing information, right, from all the various sources. So quickly before you have to leave us, what are your top tips around kind of books to read, podcasts, you know, what are your kind of go-to sources? So I'm definitely the Rainmaker by Jeffrey Fox, which is learning to sell because it doesn't matter what area of the business you're in, you will be selling something, either yourself to get a raise <laughs> or a product to, to make a commission or earnings. Um, and I, I definitely think then, you know, things like this, right? I was so scared of coming out and about age 23 and, you know, being surrounded by the suits and being minority. Sod that, right? Because actually then you're you own the stage if you're in the minority so be braver get out and about listen and learn to experiences ask people questions and also aim high so get your own mentors learn from them learn new I, I kind of picked a mentor in a sect I know nothing about everything so I had to work my way through lots of skill sets marketing and finance and I kind of have the mentor and then move on from the mentor because I needed a new skill more urgently and I think that is very powerful, not being alone, because enterprise is lonely, particularly in the startup, and we have to admit that. And therefore, also today, clubs like Supper Club or Founders Forum or a multiple of Prince's Trust, you know, for the startup phase, don't be alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really useful advice. And actually, a quick follow-up to that, and something we oft, you know, that often comes up at events like this, is where to find a mentor. Because we talk a lot about the power of a mentor. If you don't have that kind of social capital, we heard a little bit about yesterday, yeah. you don't have access to those kinds of people or role models in your immediate network or family, how do you find them? Can you just you know, contact someone you admire on LinkedIn and yes. say, will you be my mentor? Yeah, I think you can. But I mean, I also, you know, I think locally... Yeah, again, you know, my kids don't read the local papers, they, but actually there are local things going on and in it there will be local business people and one has to remember that, you know, travel is expensive, but also today has broken down a lot of barriers 
And I, I live and die by you don't ask, you don't get. Mm-hmm. So yes, aim for someone. And you know, I think every business should have a mentor or someone who's kind of been there and, and done that. But I was so stupid, I didn't do that in the early days. And I kind of made my journey harder by being alone. So I always warn people to be better at that. Um, and yeah, I think just keep asking. I mean, go to the local college network. They will know local business people. Go to, you know, if there's a massive car showroom and you want to be in the car industry, find out who owns that and then be really polite and start begging and learn persistency and learn to deal with rejection because you're going to be told no. So maybe pick the lesser car place, practice there because you might be, and then aim higher, mm-hmm. right? Don't aim lower, right? And, and so get a bit of practice in and... Um, And yes, you will take no for an answer, but in the end, somebody will help. Because actually, I think there's an enormous amount of enterprise, gray-haired ability that will pay back because we got given chances. I certainly will do that. I'm currently employing six people on Kickstarter because we've got to give young people jobs. Mm -hmm. Well, let's not open that can of worms because we need to move on to James in just a second. But I think really important, that kind of being inquisitive, being constantly inquisitive and learning wherever you are on your entrepreneurial journey. But also get your hands dirty, Hannah. We don't have the choice at the moment. Get a job. Get your hands dirty. I mean, I've done 7-Eleven. I've done McDonald's. I, I can still remember to give you the ingredients of what's in a Big Mac in less than a minute. You know, but these are skills for life. But actually, I laugh and actually I tell people that and, and I, I would challenge you that they are all lessons about serving the customer that I have put into action. Mm-hmm. What a great note to end on. Lara, thank, thank you, you so much for your time today. Thank you. Yes, please. Thank you. <laughs> James, if you'd like to come up and, and join me just for a few questions here. And I am very excited uh, that Tails is now going to be doing cat food. Uh, we've been, I've been waiting a while for this. My cats will be very excited indeed. Last time we spoke, you were just doing dog food when I interviewed you for a piece in the Times, I think, all about the kind of trends for gourmet kind of pet foods and, and pet tech. Uh, so kind of uh, smart watches and maybe not smart watches, but you know the exercise meters and pedometers yeah, for, for cats. Yeah, get those, sure. for, get those for your pets now as well. I know, yeah. it's incredible, isn't it? So I, I'd like to learn a bit more about your journey because you alluded to it on stage and we didn't have time to look at it too much there, but you mentioned that you nearly went bust in the early days. Can I just pry a little bit deeper? What happens? Yeah, um, well, we've nearly gone bust a few times actually, but the, uh, the, 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 uh, at least a couple of times, the, the, what happened in the early days is we got, we got on that journey of trying to build a product for market and it's a very special time actually before you've gone live and actually got real customers uh, and one, one of the more experienced co-founders used to say look enjoy this this is when we've got real customers it'll be so much harder and the problem was we enjoyed it a bit too much and we got too stuck into building this amazing what we thought was an amazing product that with the accessibility of technology the adoption of technology by consumers we were putting more and more layers of what was actually complexity that we just thought were clever features so when we went actually went live it was just too difficult to use uh, and it didn't work for the simple uh, 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 act of people wanting to feed their dogs their best food so mm-hmm. we had to pair it right back and we did that by finally talking to customers in a much deeper way than we than we had before we'd lost sight of them by focusing on a product that we thought would be just right for customers mm-hmm. and, it, uh, and really got carried away in our, with our own, our own geniusness <laughs> or what we thought was and actually nearly, nearly sunk the business because of I, it. I think that might be a common affliction amongst entrepreneurs. Um, so give us an idea of the scale of the business now. You're doing extraordinarily well, aren't Oh, you? wow, yeah. We've got well, I mean, well over 200,000 customers on a monthly subscription. We're trading in uh, nine countries across Europe. 
Uh, we've just launched a, a cat food uh, product, Republic of Cats, that's uh, in market uh, learning and testing in that, that early phase again, which has just been uh, challenging and fun and uh, incredibly exciting as well. So, um, yeah, there's, there's nearly 300 people now working at, at Tails.com. So we've been growing through the pandemic. Uh, we're figuring out now about how to get back to work in hybrid hybrid working and talking a lot to our team about what's the best way to do that and try and make sure that we're navigating the best path for people to stay as uh, motivated and productive as they generally have been over the last year which mm-hmm. has been fantastic yeah getting those humans and their pets back in the office because i know you had Definitely. some dogs didn't you in the uh, building when you were i think still there. i think with the, we might with the most we ever had on the day was something like 30 dogs i think in the office on a single day which was yeah the, the dog policy is one of the most contentious i suppose hr policies that we actually <laughs> I can't see it catching on at the Times and Sunday Times, but I would like to think that <laughs> it, it might <laughs> that it might one day. Um, so, so do you have any kind of key lessons learned that you could share with our audience? So, what's the one thing that you wish you'd known when you were starting out? I think the most important thing in actually in almost any business, but particularly in the most highly changing. Uh, and pressured which a high growth business is, is going to be is to make sure you've got the very best people with you with you either immediately surrounding you giving you that direct support particularly if you're in the leadership position uh, but also just throughout the whole team uh, because it all, all comes down to the choices people make on in every minute of every day of how they're going to get the thing done what they should get done and when you're now 300 people like we are at tales.com we need if all of those 300 people are firing on all cylinders, making the right choices and doing it in the right way, uh, as I'm proud to, to, as I feel very proud of it at Tesla.com that a team does, um, then it's just incredible for how much you can get done. Uh, whereas the reverse is why I think it can, can lead to failure for so many businesses. So making sure absolutely the right people are in the organisation is, mm-hmm. is my top tip. That's great advice. Thank you so much for your time <laughs> Thank today. You. Yeah, nice well, to speak to you. Thank you, Bye. James. Goodbye. Abby, if you could come and join me please hi. hi how are you doing You're really good thanks for how exciting me. is it being yeah. with real humans love it it's so nice so <laughs> i could get a taste for this um, <laughs> so can i get a little bit into the detail so exactly how does it work yeah so we take supply chain data certifications and audits mm-hmm. and then we put that through our technology and we verify the claim that it's making so if it says living wages we check is it actually paying living wages? If it says that it's organic, is it really organic? So we just do that homework. So the consumer doesn't have to. Such, it's such an incredible idea. It's one Thank of those you. you know, kind of classic entrepreneurial ideas, like why has nobody done this already? <laughs> um, so can you give us an idea of some of the brands and you know, some, of the, some of the companies you're working with and how fast you're scaling as a business yourself? Yeah, so we started in the fashion vertical, currently working with just over 70 businesses there. This can range from rental companies right across to multi-brand partners. Um, we initially went out and targeted SMEs. They actually are really sustainable. They have a smaller supply chain, but they actually also don't get a big enough voice in the market for the works that they're doing so we've started there but we're now really scaling up so in the last three months we've just done under just under 200 percent increase in in growth so we're really now starting to see the supercharge and the larger brands coming in and contacting us which is always always a nice place to be yeah absolutely do you think that consumers are getting savvier to businesses greenwashing them a hundred percent i mean this is why we're seeing people like the competition and market authority coming out and setting new rules because 
they need a level playing field for all this new demand from customers, both wanting sustainable products, but also knowing that people aren't always telling the truth or pulling the wall over our eyes. So super important as, as consumers continue to want these types of products that we don't miss the boat and make sure that they don't trust business. We need to make sure that we remain with trust in our businesses and that, that's why we exist. Amazing. And so how many of you are there? So we're a team of seven. Okay. Yeah. And growing quickly. Yes. Yeah. I think like we all wear so many hats um, within the team. So it's um, growing very quick. I actually just got off the phone with one of my team this morning. He's currently probably doing like three people's jobs at the moment around like, oh, well, we're growing this fast. Don't worry. There'll be some support very soon. So it's uh, right in the trenches, as it were. Wow. Well, you're doing extraordinarily well. Um, I have a question here for you. Um, what would... What would you say is the first question you, are, you ask yourself when things take a wrong turn or perhaps don't go quite to plan? So do you ask, you know, where, where the error lied, uh, lay? Is it with a certain individual? Is it with a process? You know, kind of how do you troubleshoot or, you know, kind of have a wash up after the, after the act? So we all come together as a team. And mm -hmm. I think what's really nice when you do that is everyone will have a, like a contribution of what they thought was wrong. And we're really open. So when people are doing really well, we'll say that. But vice versa, we always want people to feed back to us if there was something that management did. So we're always wanting to come together and just be super, super frank. And I think in a startup, if you're not super frank and honest about what the problem is and what, what we can learn from it. And I think that's the difference is there's one thing pointing out a problem, but we all go away knowing this is what we learned it's okay and mm -hmm. I think as long as we have that it motivates you to the next problem which will inevitably come of course absolutely but it's how you how you deal with those and the lessons learned and how they're applied that is such good insight Abby thank you thank so you. much for being Thanks so for generous with your time no worries. hope to see you again cheers thank you Eric last but not least how are you yeah very good how are you I am very good. So I am really interested in hearing from you. I don't want to, you know, uh, distribute your trade secrets, Eric, but I've heard brilliant things about your coaching and the personal development you're doing. Obviously, you're also a long-time contributor to Elite Business itself. Um, can you just give us a flavour of how you work with clients to, you know, make sure that they're the very best versions of themselves? Yeah, well, so um, the clients, uh, they're all CEOs of businesses generally between, say, 2 and $10 million in revenue. They're typically veteran CEOs. And it, it starts all on the mindset, right? It really starts with, um, I call, um, I have this thing about a professional versus an amateur mindset. So amateurs go about life thinking that the equation is feeling generates action, whereas professionals know that it's action generates feeling. And there's a very important distinction there because when you really embrace that, you don't need to no longer feel like doing things in the course of your day. You can just get started knowing that the action itself will generate the feelings that you seek and that will give you the momentum to carry through. So that's one of the important things I start with is making sure that the mind is right. That's incredibly freeing probably for a lot of people. Right? Yeah, yeah, because a lot of people, you know, everyone will get frustrated, right, with their own performance and I might ask a, a CEO, you know, how's that particular project going? And and I wait for that first moment when they say, well, you know, not well, and uh, well, why, why haven't you gotten around to it? Well, I didn't feel, you know, I just didn't feel up to it. And then I pounce in, well, <laughs> what does that have to do with it, right? You know, you just gotta take action. Just choose to start on whatever that is, and the, the feelings will come, right? Mm -hmm. And what about mindset itself? Is this something that we can choose? You know, can we choose to be happy? Can we choose to be, you know, really focused? 
you know, I feel like lots of us let out kind of outside factors influence, you know, how we're feeling on a particular day, and that might therefore impact our performance. Yeah, a- absolutely. But aside from, you know, happiness is a choice and all of that, it's, it's quite mainstream. Um, one of the things that I teach as well is anti-fragility. So uh, let's say a person's fragile. They take a few hits, they're going to break. Um, robust, few, you know, a few more hits, but eventually they'll break. Um, resilient, they take some hits and they return to where they were. What you really want to be is anti-fragile, whereby the more hits you take, the stronger you become. And when you get that in your head, then you realize that stress actually builds strength. So you don't stress yourself out by trying to you know, pursue a stress-free life. Instead, you embrace all those challenges, adversities, and moments throughout the day as nothing more than like little weights being presented to you, you know, in the gym of life. And you got to step into them and, and build your strength. I love that. Weights in the gym of life. I'm going to use that one in future. <laughs> so there's a question here, you know, um, how important is routine for entrepreneurs? Um, and I think that's interesting because, you know, as a n- number of the speakers have said, they wear so many different hats. No day is the same. I'm sure you hear this mm-hmm. time and time again from the, you know, your clients. So do they have to build a routine around some of the things they can do, you know, in terms of exercising, you know, eating well, always perhaps, you know, spending time with their children in the morning? How important is that to kind of the mythical work-life balance? Oh, it's hugely important. I mean, one of the things that entrepreneurs struggle with is operating at a high level within a relatively structureless environment. Um, there's three routines that I always really focus on. So evening routine, you know, get to bed on time such that you get uh, eight hours of sleep. Uh, morning routine, start your day trying to be creative rather than reactive. Don't start in social media. Don't start you know, browsing you know, the news. Start your day doing some kind of creative output. And then during the course of your work day as you're working on things, single task. Don't you know, jump around from one thing to the next. You know, work on one thing at a time and schedule what you work on with yourself as appointments with yourself as you would an appointment with someone else. Mm-hmm. This is just such good practical stuff. I hope people have got a notepad and (laughs) and pen out. Um, Lara, right at the beginning of her keynote earlier, was talking about, you know, there have been some silver linings of the pandemic. She mentioned, you know, watching uh, fathers taking their children to school this morning when she was Mm -hmm. driving here to join us at this event. So what will you take from the pandemic that perhaps you didn't do before, that you didn't have time to do, etc., that you will, you know, build into your days going forwards? Well, one thing in particular is I've developed a much stronger bond with my seven-year-old son than I had before the pandemic. And that's just because I've been around so much more. And it's made me really appreciate that family time more so than I did, you know, in the past, to be frank. And so um, even coming out of of this. There are some practices in terms of how often, for example, I go and do external meetings versus just meet you know, online um, uh, that I'll hold on to mm-hmm. so that I can retain you know, that, that deeper presence and connection that I've developed with my family. Amazing. Thank you. And I think that's been a key lesson for many of us. Yeah. Eric, it's been great to see you again. Thank you. Take care. Thank All you right, so much for those reflections. Lot.